Rule 1. The criminal must be someone mentioned in the early part of the story, but must not be anyone whose thoughts the reader has been allowed to follow. Rule 2. All supernatural or preternatural agencies are ruled out as a matter of course. Rule number 3. No more than one secret room or passage is allowable. Rule number four, no hitherto undiscovered poisons may be used, nor any appliance which will need a long scientific explanation at the end. Rule number five, no Chinaman must figure into the story. Rule number six, no accident must ever help the detective, nor must he ever have an unaccountable intuition which proves to be right. Number seven, the detective himself must not commit the crime. Rule number eight, the detective must not light upon any clues, which are not instantly produced for the inspection of the reader. Rule number nine, the stupid friend of the detective, the Watson, must not conceal any thoughts which pass through his mind. His intelligence must be slightly, but very slightly, below that of the average reader. Rule number ten, twin brothers and doubles generally must not appear unless we have been duly prepared for them. And those are the Knox... Decalogue, the Ten Commandments of Father Knox. Welcome to a Death of the Reader bonus episode. Today we're going to be discussing a little bit about those rules and breaking down what they mean both in the context of writing the story and to us as puzzle solvers. So, Knox is the author we covered in the first three weeks with The Three Taps. He's a little absurdist piece of classic murder mystery about the death of one Jeff the Mottram. And we spent a lot of the episode talking about this thing called the Knox Decalogue. Mm. Yeah, he's a lovely old man. He's written this Decalogue, and it's uh, inspired from his time as a as a, a churchman, uh, a Catholic priest. And uh, he decides to put together these ten rules. Uh, and I think we're going to go through them and kind of talk about what they mean, uh, why they come from, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Now, the... The Ten Rules, let's be clear, is Knox's Ten Commandments for yes. the murder mystery genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, as as the churchman, there's a lot of interesting pieces you can find out there of discussions between Ronald Knox and other authors. I found one recently between C.S. Lewis and Ronald Knox mm. about the greater implications of religion, which is super fascinating. Yeah, he's really left his mark on the world in not just detective fiction, but other areas as well. He's inspired a lot of authors, uh, which is really cool. Also, someone told me in the audience that uh, Ronald Knox is apparently very big in Japan. What? Why? Uh, I don't know. Who but... knows? Who <laughs> knows what work of fiction he could possibly be associated well, with in Japan? I know which one you're thinking of, <laughs> and that actually it predate, predates that. Oh, really? Yeah. Would you like to tell me what the, the one is that he's known for? I honestly could not find in the time oh, that I had. That's all right. Maybe but we'll... that's definitely something we'll cover as we continue on our we'll murder mystery it. world tour. So today we wanted to go down through the rules, break them down bit by bit, talk about what they mean so that when we bring them up on the show, you kind of have this to pull back to a bit of reference so you know what's going on. Mm-hmm. So the first rule, the criminal must be someone mentioned in the early part of the story, but must not be anyone whose thoughts the reader has been allowed to follow. This is pretty basic storytelling. It's foreshadowing. If you have watched any shows, any novels, you'll know that we love it when we foreshadow our twists. We show our murderers before they murder, not when they murder. Uh, we, well, you know, before we know they're a murderer. Same difference. Uh, one of the most basic parts of storytelling is putting the point of conflict on screen and having them interact with us in some way uh, with, our, with our protagonists. Uh, that's what this rule is for. Making sure that it's a fair play situation and we know who our suspects are before we pick a culprit. One of the other novels that we're about to cover on the show, The Floating Admiral, as I was reading the opening chapter of that, we 
almost get into this one character's head, but we never explicitly follow their actual thoughts. Mm. It's kind of in a very, very subtly third-person view, and that immediately made me suspicious. I was like, oh, goodness, this means they could still be the culprit. <laughs> um, and also one of the things that Nox says alongside this rule is that typically the culprit is the first person mentioned in the story, yes. which is why this particular example in The Floating Admiral had me so on edge. Yes, 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 yes. Now, the second rule, herds. The second rule is that all supernatural or preternatural agencies are ruled out as a matter of course. I think that this is a rule that, not to say that it hasn't aged well, because I think that that puts it in the wrong light, but it's definitely more indicative of its time in history. Mm. I think that more modern crime fiction stories are much more open to the question of the supernatural, and I think that's a totally cool thing. Obviously, if you're going for a standard crime, almost procedural, going through just following a detective, solving a crime, then, you know, it could feel a bit out of place to drop in some supernatural stuff. But the scope of crime fiction has clearly broadened since then. Well, I think that this ties in a lot with the a lot of older murder mysteries that had uh, occult, you know, uh, implications. You'll walk into the crime scene and there'll be symbols on the walls and the devil's sign, all that sort of thing. And there's this question of what, why was this done? Was this done for some supernatural ritual being cast? Who knows? Yeah, I don't think it's meant to be saying that you can't have supernatural elements to your story. But what it is saying is that your story should be explainable without those means. Hmm. So when we get to, you know, certain stories that have a supernatural undertone, it'll tend to be that this, you know, it's what the locals think that it's supernatural. Whereas in reality, here's how you can explain it with, you know, purely the regular laws of science. Hmm. And even that is something that we might be able to debate, depending on the author. Exactly. Yeah. And the third rule of Ronald A. Knox is... Not more than one secret room or passage is allowable. Why not more than one? The Knox boggles the mind. But yeah, it's that there's only one secret passage allowed um, as part of the mystery. I suppose this is written in response to a, a, a number of you know, authors that want to play a lot of twists and surprises on the reader by having a series of tunnels or locked rooms, you know, uh, you know, things hidden away. But really, Knox, I guess, is saying that you should only have one of these. There should be one moment of surprise. Ah, this is how the servants are getting around the mansion. There's these ancient hallways. Um, oh, there's this cave below, and that's where the murder weapon is being kept. That sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly the wrong period of time, but when I first read this rule, I was picturing Knox looking at the Get Smart intro with all mm. the doors gradually closing in on another. <laughs> Tearing his hair out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, the next rule, no unhitherto discovered poisons may be used, nor any appliance which will need a long scientific explanation at the end. I think this one is just common sense phrased clearly. Mm-hmm. It has to make sense of the story. Yeah, I, I don't think that it's saying that you can't use cool gadgets, cool poisons, cool science... But if you have to do something as absolutely menial as analyzing how long it took someone to brew tea to solve <laughs> your mystery, then just get out of town. Yeah. I think that the intent here is very much so that the the author can't say gotcha at the end of the novel and say, well, actually, it was, you know, uh, Poison X, which I have just made up and that you've not heard anything about up until this moment. Uh, it's it's to stop authors from writing stories that aren't solvable until you get to the, the ending. Um, because that's really what Knox is about, is about fair play. 
I do think that this rule does seem to challenge a lot of, you know, science fiction and more out there approaches to murder mystery, which obviously wasn't the the common story at the time. Mm. But I do think that this rule can be in, interpreted in a way that it can still work as long as you clearly explain and don't ov- overcomplicate the details that you're using. Mm. Now, the fifth rule is one which is oft overlooked. No Chinaman must figure in the story. Now, this one, uh, you could probably extrapolate it to say uh, no obvious foreign character <laughs> in, yeah. in the sense, because what he's really talking about here, again, is novels that are written with a very obvious villain in mind, you know. Someone's been killed, and there are signs all over the walls written in a strange language, and there's, you know, Billy, Harry, Sally, and the Chinaman along yes. the street. We know who the villain is from the very beginning because there's one person that's obviously out of place. Um, a lot of modern murder mysteries use this trope as a way to uh, lay down red herrings, though, uh, the obvious mad scientist is actually trying to cure the zombie virus, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, but it's very much a, indicative of the of the time, this one. Yeah, I mean, obviously the language in the actual rule itself is a bit dated. Mm. I've, I don't think I've ever actually heard someone say Chinaman out loud in my life mm. other than reading. And I think a lot of people's initial reaction will be like, oh, you know, that's, that's nasty. I know Andrew Popel, when we spoke to him mm. for the Three Taps episode one, had that reaction, but it's yep. explicitly the opposite. It's meant to say, like, don't make people be these stereotypes. Yep. Let them be a character. Don't just go, he's the foreigner, thus he's the villain. Yep. It's it's very much uh, part of that argument about culture and how culture changes over time, because Chinaman obviously was an okay word to use back then. Not so much now, uh, certainly in this context. Um, and yeah, But yeah, that's really what it's about. It's about saying there should not be an obvious villain. The next rule, no accident must ever help the detective, nor must he ever have an unaccountable intuition, which proves to be right. You need to be on the same page as your, uh, as your detective. The reader needs to be, that is. Yeah, I, I think that this rule could be very easily misused. Mm. I feel as though it's saying, if you read it at the just utmost face value, that the detective cannot be smart. Mm-hmm. But what it's really saying is that if you haven't presented the clues that the detective is using clearly enough, then you need to reconsider the way that you're approaching your detective. Yep. I think that the easiest way to work with this rule rather than against it is to have events that seem like accidents are actually by design of other characters in the novel that we're not currently following. That's typically how I see those sorts of things used. And I think that this rule is really to encourage that sort of writing. Um, You don't just suddenly have oh, the, the carriage rode past me and someone dropped a letter out of it and it has the, the murderer's name on it. Um, instead saying, oh, well, somebody has put this letter here and the usefulness of it is dubious because it could be used to try and frame someone or it could be a legitimate piece of evidence, we're not sure. I think one of the other common examples is that when a detective first meets a character, if they're immediately suspicious of them, mm. you need to have some justification as to why. Yes. The next rule, the detective must not himself commit the crime. I think this one's pretty self-explanatory. This one is very self-explanatory, but I also think that it is one of the ones that most excites me in its potential for breaking. Yep, for sure. Basically, I think if you were to have a story that did have the detective commit the crime, and that's what you come to realize at the end, you Mm. should ultimately then also realize that the detective is not your detective. Sure. This is definitely one of those rules. I mean, you could apply to any of the rules. There is even a novel written that had to explicitly break each of the rules one at a time. Um, but uh, this this rule, 
implying that you can never ever have the you know the protagonist be the villain. There have been plenty of good stories with protagonists who are also the villain or who have amnesia and have forgotten that they were once a villain and now they're trying to right their wrongs, that sort of thing. Um, this is definitely one of those rules that was written for you know, organizations like the Detection Club um, and groups of people who are all writing together and trying to find some common ground to write with. Um, it is definitely the most fun rule to break, the most fun rule to see change and twisted, uh, as long as those things are appropriately foreshadowed. Yeah, I think that that tends to be the case with all of these rules, but that's something we can get to a bit later on. Yeah. The next one, the detective must not light on any clues which are not instantly produced for the inspection of the reader. In some ways, this kind of rephrases the sixth rule that they must not have an unaccountable intuition. Mm. Um, But I think that this is just more clearly laying out specifically clues reasoning. Yep. That's the way that you want to you want to play yep. it. As I say, all these rules are about giving the detective and the reader the same amount of information, so when they make their deductions, when the when the detective does, when they say this is the culprit, this is the twist, this is what they figured out, the reader is not lost. Or if they are, they can read back and see how they could have followed along in the first place. This is the one rule that I think should not be broken under any circumstances, mm-hmm. um, be- because it's just a way of describing foreshadowing and I think that a story without appropriate foreshadowing not only does it a disservice because then there is less satisfaction when the conclusion is actually established but also that it's just uh, more fair and that's what these rules are all about. That's what Knox is really focused on. Now my favorite rule, rule number nine the stupid friend of the detective, the Watson, must not conceal any thoughts which pass through his mind. His intelligence must be slightly, but very slightly, below that of the average reader, which implies that the uh, author knows the intelligence of all his readers. I know. Which is great. Also, <laughs> also, just describing him as the stupid friend is... Because he is. But we love him. <sighs> we love our Watsons. Uh, they are to be treasured, of course. I think that it's a very thin analysis of a character to say that Watson was merely the stupid friend. <laughs> um, I think particularly when we look at more modern adaptations of Sherlock, they've definitely refigured his character to be a bit more intelligent in a way that still doesn't talk down to the reader. Mm. Because that's ultimately what this rule is about. It's not about having all of your characters be so hyper-intelligent that the reader's struggling to keep up with them. Yep. Well, the intent, I think, if you have a good balance between the detective and the stupid friend, quote-unquote, is the detective will have a slightly higher intelligence and the and the Watson will have the slightly lower intelligence, and thus they balance out to be one whole reader. That's the intent. Yeah, I think that that's definitely the goal. And if you look at a lot of classic, you know, buddy cop detective fiction stories, that tends to be the way. Yep. I do think that this rule is probably the least necessary of the lot. Mm. Uh, I think that you first of all you don't need the stupid friend. I was going to say that. Yes. Um, yes. I, I think that if you have a Watson that is very intelligent, again, the three taps, we had Angela, who is a fantastic Watson. She's incredibly smart, but still presents things in a way that are very clearly understandable. And I think that Knox is doing a deconstruction of his own rules in that story mm. with that character, and that's totally awesome. Yeah, I think that the real strength of the, the stupid friend, which is a, and a whole topic for another day, but the real strength is when the stupid friend has a, a or the Watson, has a completely different way of going about detectiving than the detective himself does or herself does i think this is when they shine now the final rule number 10 
Twin brothers and doubles generally must not appear unless we have been duly prepared for them. This is a very specific rule because when we are looking for a culprit, we are looking for a person. And so when we say, we, we lay out our clues and we say, Alfred was spotted in the dining room at 9 p.m., which is a very kind of standard sort of clue that you'll get in those older detective fictions. Um, we don't want to also hear at the very end of the novel that Alfred's twin brother, Balfred, was, you know, in the garden at 9.20. And, oh, how did he get from the diner to the balcony? It, it doesn't matter. If there are doubles in the story, there should be some foreshadowing. And it's quite simple, really. You just need, like, a, a painting on a wall with two strangely, you know, similar-looking fellows, that sort of thing. Um, but, again, this comes back to the idea of foreshadowing. If there is something in your story that would be considered unfair, that would go against the normal kind of flow of the mystery genre and the, the kind of clues that we're supposed to be prepared for, um, there should be foreshadowing of some kind. It's really as simple as that. And, I mean... That's ultimately what all of these rules break down mm -hmm. to, is this unless foreshadowed. And that's totally cool. I think that it's worth keeping these in mind no matter the detective fiction story that you're reading with, because it does give you a bit of a framework mm -hmm. to work with as you're trying to solve it. And that's always a useful thing to have in a puzzle context. Mm -hmm. It gives you a spring forward, it gives you a frame to work with, and then you're, it's your challenge to then puzzle out the individual pieces and see, oh, well, maybe, maybe there are doubles and I just haven't been quite prepared for them. Maybe there's some, uh, some sort of twist that this author usually uses. Um, if you looked at, for example, G.K. Chesterton's work, he uses a lot of paradoxical writing. So that's something you need to be prepared for. Um, that's just something that you sort of need to do a little bit of research on, I think. Well, I wouldn't even necessarily say that. I think that it's something that if you wanted to keep ahead of the puzzle, you for should sure. do research on. Exactly. That's what I mean. But you don't need to keep ahead of the puzzle in a murder mystery. You can you just to. read along. Of course you can. If you're interested in catching a book that explicitly breaks down the rules of Knox, you can check out Sins for Father Knox by Joseph Skvorecki. Uh, I, I hope you nailed that. <laughs> it is it is S-K-V-O-R-E-C-K-Y. I'm sure with a bit of practice that I could have pronounced that better. But, is that Russian? Uh, that is an excellent question. You know what? We'll find out later. <laughs> <laughs> it's the fun. <laughs> but we might get to that a bit later on Death of the Reader itself. We hope you've enjoyed this little bonus episode. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Catch you on the show. Bye.